ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Joel Watson, First Secretary at the British High Commission. It's my pleasure to welcome to the latest episode of Tea with the High Commission, Chris Stark. Chris is the CEO of the UK's Committee on Climate Change. Before his current role, Chris was also the Director of Energy and Climate Change in the Scottish Government. Chris, welcome to New Zealand. Hi, I don't have any tea, Joe. We'll make up for that. We can get you <laughs> coffee or water. You've only got me, you've only got me water. <laughs> you've been in New Zealand, Chris, for the last few days. Can you tell us what you've been doing here? Yeah, I've been having a really good time. You've worked me very hard. So I came here uh, four days ago, I think. Um, and have been relatively jet lag free, so I'm very pleased about that. And my main task really has been to uh, come and speak to the various people who are involved in New Zealand's current effort to introduce a new bill for climate change, uh, which is modelled on the UK um, example from 10 years ago. We have a Climate Change Act, and it's 10 years old next month, and the kind of basic design features are those that I, I gather you will find in the New Zealand Bill. So my job here has not been to come along and instruct, but instead to try and share as much as I can about the experience of having that act. Um, I've also spoken at um, a really excellent conference here in Auckland um, on climate change and business, uh, where I talked about that 10-year journey we've been on in the UK. And it's been a really positive experience. It's very clear that New Zealand's doing some really important things at the moment. And thinking of that, what are the key messages you'll take away from your time? Gosh, that's a really good question. I think that every country must approach this differently would be my first takeaway. Um, and I, it may seem like an obvious thing, but it's become really obvious as we've gone around um, uh, Auckland this week, um, speaking to various people, that each country has a different story. But there are some common features of a successful strategy here which have also really come through. And I would say that number one of those is that it is really important to have a piece of legislation like the Climate Change Act um, or, the, uh, or the Net Zero Bill here in New Zealand as a means to communicate long-term trajectory and intention to do something for, you know, especially the business uh, sector, commerce sector, to have something to plan around. Um, it's been really interesting to draw some parallels between UK and New Zealand. As you say, there's a lot of focus on the Zero Carbon Bill, which will come before the New Zealand Parliament shortly. The bill will establish a, a climate change commission um, based on the UK model. Are there any aspects of the UK's experience over the last 10 years that you would encourage the government and the, and the policy setters to consider? So the basic framework for how we tackle climate change in the UK is definitely one of our best uh, best exports. I mean, I'm really pleased that um, New Zealand government is choosing to uh, replicate large swathes of it. The, um, the One of the reasons why it's such an important thing is the Committee on Climate Change, which is my institution. Um, there will be a commission in New Zealand modelled in the same way as you say, Joel. And what's important about that really is that climate change is ultimately something that is probably beyond a single term of Parliament to fix. Uh, in fact, it will take a long time, I suspect, for us to really address it. Um, and you really need, firstly, that idea of the kind of long-term statutory backdrop for doing something about it in the form of a target. And you need um, a path to get from here to there that is overseen by someone that has an independent view of whether the government has, um, has the most appropriate strategy. 
And we are, I suppose, the independent arbiters of that. We try our level best to do that in a really objective, transparent way. Uh, we've been at it for 10 years, so I think we know a little bit about how to do it well. Uh, and so far, it's worked really well in the UK. So what I've been talking about, whenever anyone will listen here in, in Auckland, has been the importance of that governance framework and having a really good and independent commission um, alongside the strong policies that the present government in New Zealand clearly is, is keen to implement. And the independence of, of your committee is, is clearly very important. Can you just say a little bit about how the committee is set up and how it works with both government and, and parliament? So the first thing to say is, although I once was a civil servant, I'm now a public servant. And that is a very important distinction because it means I don't directly serve ministers any longer. And that gives me the freedom to say the things that need to be said. Um, so we have this kind of very fiercely held independence. Um, although we are publicly funded, we are, we are free to make the, the, you know, the, the, the independent statements that are necessary to make sure that the, the plan is in good shape. Um, so the biggest kind of feature, I suppose, is that, that we, we stand um, close to government but not part of it. Um, and then the kind of other aspects of our role are that we have a really, really um, uh, in-depth idea of the plan. Um, we measure, in the main, the cost-effective path. That's what we talk a lot about in my, in my role. And that's our way of understanding how we can get from where we stand today to the long-term target in the way that is um, most cost-effective for the whole economy. Um, and then we hold that independent view, and that's what we appraise the government against. Um, and that involves us having a really kind of good interaction with government, and again, a very independent discussion with each of those departments in Whitehall, and increasingly beyond Whitehall. And that, I think, is one of the key things I bring from my last role. You mentioned in your introduction that I used to work in Scotland, where I made policy. And one of my passionate beliefs is that this won't be solved by central government alone and certainly won't be solved by Whitehall alone. And we need to, my committee needs to reach out to a broader category of, of policymakers and probably also to the private sector to make sure that everyone has the information they need to, to, to get that cost-effective path uh, on track. Do you feel the committee has made a difference? Of course, Joel. <laughs> Uh, I really do feel it's made a difference, and, and I, I suppose one of the things that we, we, often, we often think about is how do you measure that? Uh, you, I think you best measure it in the overall performance. So um, in terms of emissions reduction, the UK is doing pretty well. In terms of our production emissions, um, they have fallen by 43% since 1990. Um, and the other stat I always make sure I add in is that the, the economy has grown by 70% over that period. So we really sort of, you know, at the time when the Act was passed, one of the things that a lot of people said was this is going to damage the economy. Well, the UK's economy is a really good example of why that isn't the case. There are some things along the way that, um, that, that, that we can lay claim to directly in the committee, but actually I don't think that's the job. I think overall our ability to kind of oversee that last 10 years of really positive story of clean growth um, which is very much the, the language of the present government. Um, I feel really good about the committee's role in that. Um, along the way, we've had to say some pretty difficult things, and I suppose the other testament to our success is that we're still doing it. Um, so we've been able to say those difficult uh, things to government at the, appropriate, at the appropriate time without breaking down our relationship entirely, and I think that is testament to the, to the quality of the analysis that we produce. So I, I do feel really good. I've only been doing this job for six months, although I made policy on the other side of the fence, as it were, before that. Um, but I really feel the quality of the work that we do here in, in the Committee on Climate Change. That's one of the things I've been talking about here in Auckland. 
Um, and I suppose the other thing, I, I really feel the, the um, responsibility not to break it. So clearly something's been going right if I'm having that kind of emotional reaction to the role. <laughs> During this week in, in Auckland, have there been things about the, the UK setup that you've maybe suggested to, to New Zealand um, your interlocutors not to do? Ah, uh, the, the, the question that um, I hoped you wouldn't ask. Um, there's a few things, really. I mean, by and large, the framework that was established 10 years ago, uh, to step aside for just a second, when we passed the Climate Change Act in the UK, next month is its 10th birthday. Um, and we are a product of it, so it's our birthday too. And I suppose there's been a collective endeavour this year in thinking about what's been achieved over that over that period. So there's lots of really warm and positive things that have been said about that act. I do believe it is one of the best pieces of legislation that Westminster has produced in recent memory. It, it's because of that framework. It's because it it, it it was of its it was kind of captured a moment I think ten years ago when there was a, such an, a compelling feeling that something must be done about climate change. Um, and it, it seems to me that the, the UK Parliament in Westminster captured that better than almost anywhere else in a piece of legislation that was incredibly ambitious. Um, and built into it is this idea that independent appraisal of, of climate change must go alongside you know, the, the, the overall effort. And in fact, the target that's at the heart of that legislation is this target to reduce emissions by 80% from where they stood in 1990, um, by 2050. Um, and we advised on that level, the level of that target. That was the first thing that the committee did. And I think that's going to it sort of set a template for, for the willingness of parliament and government to listen to that kind of advice. So, so all of that is incredibly positive. That said, there are some things that, that, that you know, we, could, we could improve on. And we've been talking about those things with my, my colleagues and, and friends in New Zealand. Um, there's not many, though. Um, and the things that, that I think, when I think of how we might improve it, they are, they're kind of tinkering at the edges, really, of, of what is a really compelling and, and important uh, governance arrangement. The stuff I would really like to have seen improve over the last 10 years hasn't really been about the committee or the, or, or the legislation. It's the, it's the ambitious policies that I think we could have implemented sooner and that we'll need to implement in the UK. And, and that's true in New Zealand, as it is in many other countries around the world. And that's the kind of thing that we've been turning our mind to more and more really is can, you know, can we progress things even quicker uh, and, and I don't mind admitting I have a mild regret that some of the things that we now need to do we probably could have done a few years earlier um, so I've been making whenever, whenever, whenever I've had the opportunity I've been making that point to the people who are, who are putting in place the plans for New Zealand at the moment do it quickly and it is cheaper generally and of course uh, this week climate change has been in the news a lot we had the release of the latest IPCC report on the impact of global warming. What did you make of the report? Um, well, it's it's um, it's pretty sobering reading, isn't it? Um, the um, that's my main insight, really. Um, the uh, the the summary for policymakers which doesn't sound very attractive, does it? As a as a you know a, as a title. If you're even remotely interested in this topic, I recommend reading it. It's one of the most concise uh, descriptions of the challenges that lie ahead that I have ever read in my time in this field. Um, and there's a lot of people, I think, at the moment, in you know, saying some very alarming things about it. I'm not going to be one of them because I think we need to. I think we need to stop and just think about what that report is telling us, and make some measured steps forward on it. But it is it is telling telling us. You know a number of things. Firstly, that the temperatures in the world have increased since uh, the Industrial Revolution, 
by about one degree Celsius, which doesn't sound like very much, but in terms of the weather systems and the patterns and the impacts of uh, that go with that is really very extreme. And the report tells us not only that that has happened, but also that it can be highly attributed now to human activity um, uh, to a degree that we can be very, very confident of now. So we've, we've warmed the earth by a degree, um, uh, which is by historical standards incredible, uh, the pace at which that happened. And what that report looks at is what prospects there are for limiting further warming by another half a degree. Um, and it shows that it's possible, but we have a tiny window in which to act. And you really need this kind of handbrake turn in global emissions to make that happen. And then the other thing that it says is that um, previously, some of the global diplomacy effort has been focused on a two degree impact or, uh, or limiting temperatures to two degrees Celsius. Well, this report says there is an appreciable difference between one and a half degrees and two degrees, and especially in some of the big extreme weather impacts and impacts on biodiversity around the globe, um, we should worry about that difference. So I suppose you might say it is worthwhile trying to target the lower temperature. Um, uh, there is enough in that report to say that it really is something that the global effort should focus on. Um, whether it is possible to do that doesn't, it turns out, rest on uh, the various sets of technologies that we thought would have to be developed 10 years ago. Well, we know a lot about that now. We know we can do it. Um, it, it doesn't rest on uh, you know, uh, uh, unknown policy measures. In fact, we know a lot about how to get from here to one and a half degrees. We just need to implement them. In fact, what it rests on is the global political will to do it. And that's the uncertainty. And I suppose I, I, what I wonder is, and I, as I read that report, is this, going to be the, is this going to be the moment? Is this the point when we really get real about climate change? Um, I, I, I really hope it is. And I'm, I'm not really speaking as, as the chief executive of the Committee on Climate Change. I'm speaking as a, an interested citizen of the world. It's so, so um, important that we do something about this, the more I understand it. So that's what I read into the report. Um, uh, I think we need to now uh, turn that into some, some real action. And I think you know, it's important that the, the science around climate change appears to be settled. There are still uncertainties, but by and large it's settled. Um, is perhaps the bigger challenge turning that scientific uh, language into everyday plain language so people can understand actually what one and a half degrees of warming actually looks like. Well, you're quite right. The last thing you want is the chief executive of the Committee on Climate Change coming along and talking about IPCC reports and parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's, it's not, even though I'm sure I could tell some sort of compelling story about it, I don't expect that to be the single most motivating factor. Um, we have to turn this into a story, a compelling story, and, and that story needs to be constantly revisited. I mean, I, I, again, this point about the 10-year anniversary of the Climate Change Act, the 10th anniversary of the committee as well, there was a really compelling story that led to that legislation 10 years ago. Um, uh, there were only three dissenting votes uh, in the Commons uh, for the Climate Change Bill. How fascinating that the politics was so uh, unified at that point. That's because everyone understood the story, I think. They understood the need to act. They also understood, I think, the need, that, the need for the UK to take a lead in it. I, I think we need to you know, check in a bit on whether the story is still right, mm -hmm. whether the politicians still feel the same motivating factor, the motivation to act, whether there is still the same excitement to act. That's a, you know, a good question to ask. But crucially, it's not just about politics. Um, it needs to be, I think, something that people feel they want 
So, um, you know, I am not an expert in how you how you motivate um, behaviours um, across mass populations. Far from it. But what I believe is that um, people aren't stupid, um, uh, and you know they need to be provided with the information about the risk. Um, but equally, they have to feel that something can be done about it. So, I, I, if if I have a sort of mantra about this, it's that we have we seem that we seem to have kind of systematically understated the risk of climate change, whilst also understating the benefits of acting on it. And it seems to me that's an entirely um, a fixable issue you know we can we can surely we can work through that 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 challenge and get to a good outcome at the end of that so let's make sure that everyone understands what's going on um let's only be alarmist if it's appropriate to be alarmist but crucially let's also have a sense that there is a plan something can be done about this and then i think people will want to be part of that they'll feel that they that you know that that and governments of i often think governments follow rather than lead i think you're right i think um as we've seen both in new zealand but also in the uk the move to take action to ban plastic bags, for example, has been driven by a compelling narrative that you know, uh, people have seen plastic damaging marine wildlife, you know, catching turtles and, and things like that. Uh, and people are emotional and also rational. Yeah. And they have driven that action. Do you think it's driving the politicians or do you think it's driving business that it's driving people like in new zealand countdown a new world in the uk tesco sainsbury's to act because their consumers want them to act i well i certainly like to think so i mean one of the uh one of the uh speakers at the conference uh, was was um the head of sustainability for martin spencer um and i think marks and spencer and many other commercial retailers see it as uh, you know, as a commercial um, imperative to act on these issues, as well as being you know an ecological imperative. So, uh, I think they're doing it for, for sheer preservation to maximise their shareholder value. And that's you know that I think that's because people implicitly understand that this is something that needs to be acted on. You're so right to raise the plastics issue, and I, I suppose one of the things I, I can't explain actually is how quickly public sentiment has moved against plastic. And uh, you know that's I think that's brilliant, frankly from. From, from my own perspective. And, and there have been these moments in the past when these big policy public questions have been addressed like that. I often think about the smoking ban in the UK, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Joel, you and I have talked about seatbelts. Um, there are these moments when there is a kind of window for, for government to act, to do something that you, know, you wouldn't be able to do perhaps in the past. And I hope we get to one of those on climate change. Um, I think we probably had one of those moments 10 years ago and let's see if we can have another one so that we get ourselves into the next set of challenges and then there'll be another set after that. So I think that's one of our roles actually is to try and maintain the consensus to do those things. From your perspective, we're not doomed, there's hope. We're not doomed, no. Uh, we could be doomed, but I think if, that, if the message is that we're doomed then I, I, I guarantee you we won't act. And, you know, there's a whole kind of school of thought, actually, that instead what you should do is, is simply kind of let it happen now and adapt. And, well, I just think that's not the way through this. We need to, we need to make those adaptations as we know them uh, to the temperatures that we know are coming. But we also simultaneously need to act on these things. So we're far from doomed. But I suppose I worry that um, unless we can paint that um, positive picture of the future, um, then we won't get to these really ambitious pledges that are required from each country around the world. Or rather, we won't get there soon enough. I suspect we will. We would get there actually when it was when it was incredibly obvious how this was how, how this was playing out. 
uh, there's still enough uncertainty, sadly, from some quarters around the world that uh, you're not seeing that kind of ambitious policy making. I really hope that the UK stays in the lead on these issues. Um, and I've certainly picked up in my time in New Zealand that a desire for New Zealand to join the UK in the, in, in the forefront of, of tackling these issues. And again, I think that's part of the positive story. You know, UK, UK ha can do this, can be a, you know, a, a, a global leader on something uh, as important as this, and can carry uh, you know, its neighbours and friends like New Zealand along with it. Chris, thanks for your time. Thank you. Can I have my cup of tea now? You can. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.